We are this morning in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. We are moving forward through this book. This particular passage here in Romans chapter 3, uh, it's a a fairly interesting passage. You're probably aware that uh, in my wayward youth, I uh, set out to memorize the book of Romans and uh, actually managed to succeed doing that. Don't ask me now. That would uh, strain my brain, but at the time. And I don't recall chapter 3 being particularly difficult um, to get down. It, it kind of rolled right along. Uh, if you asked me what I thought was the most difficult to, uh, to memorize, it was the end of chapter 5. That was uh, fairly exciting. But I've discovered, having um, you know, studied this passage, particularly this week, that um, as I really set out to say, okay, uh, you know, uh, seminary and all of that, you know, kind of motivates you to uh, make a real effort to make sure that you're uh, not just relying on past uh, views to get a handle on this passage. And discovered that uh, I had not thought about this passage anywhere near as much as I needed to. And uh, interestingly, uh, one of the main commentaries that I'm using is a guy by the name Douglas Moo. I don't know if you've read Moo's commentary on Romans. But he says, you know, that you think by the time you get to chapter 3 that you're kind of, you know, past the difficult passages, you know, to translate and interpret and those kinds of things. He said, but man, you hit this passage. And uh, if, if you really want to have some fun, and, you know, we're, I'm going to give you my view on this, of course, but if you really want to have some fun, try to go through this passage, verses 1 through 8 here of chapter 3, and ask yourself exactly who is saying what here, and uh, try to figure out if you can put together the actual logical argument that Paul is, you know, bringing into this, and uh, it, it was actually fairly challenging. I've spent virtually the entire week uh, kind of rolling around here. Let's see, this, that, that. I, I did conclude, by the way, uh, you're, you know, you have to, right? That's why theologians can't be pastors, because you have to get up every Sunday and finally come up with what you came up with, you know. But uh, I did come to the conclusion, uh, a similar conclusion, by the way, to uh, dear Dr. Moo. Uh, and so uh, you, you're, I will share that with you. I suspect, however, this is going to be one of those sermons, and, you know, you get them, right? You're like, okay, when he preached that, that all made sense. But six months from now, when we ask, you're going to look at the passage, you go, now, how did that go again? Um, we'll, we'll see. As Paul writes this book, and this is important to get to the book of Romans, Paul is going to transition from a pharisaical Jewish person to a New Testament Gentile person. Not that Paul ever becomes a Gentile, mind you. But Paul needs to make the transition. Paul is raised a Pharisee. We know that he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. We know that his view of the Old Testament is a pharisaical view. He believes that you get saved by, you know, keeping the covenant and being circumcised, being a child of Abraham, and if at all possible, being, you know, doing all of the commands. And that salvation comes about through those things. The minimum standard, which the Jewish people believed, was that at least if you were a circumcised son of Abraham, I mean, if you at least reached that, then they actually taught that Abraham sat at the gate of Gehenna and made sure that, that no Jewish person would enter into hell. Uh, so that was kind of the bare minimum. You at least, you know, obviously Paul went a little further than that. He was all too happy to be a, uh, a Pharisee, a legalistic Pharisee, in fact. 
So when Paul gets saved, we have to remember that, you know, it's not like God reaches down and, you know, just transforms Paul in all of his thinking from A to Z. Now, there is a great transformation. And on the Damascus Road, as we just went over in Sunday school this morning, you know, God speaks to Paul and he says, who are you, Lord? And the reason he asks that is because as a Jewish person, he knows that if you see this bright light and someone's speaking to you from heaven, that that's clearly God. And uh, the, the question that he's asked is, why are you persecuting me? And if you're Paul, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm not persecuting you. I mean, if this is God and you're speaking to me, I'm not persecuting God. I'm doing the work of God. I mean, I, what, what do you mean, why am I persecuting you? What, what kind of a question is that? I'm, I'm not persecuting you. Uh, who, who is this? Uh, this is Jesus, who you are, in fact, persecuting. Now, at that moment, there is a radical transformation in Paul's thinking. I mean, at that moment, he suddenly goes, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. But even Paul, who knows his Old Testament well, still needs to sit down and think about this. Well, if that's true, then, well, what about this passage? And what about this passage? And in fact, what about the things that I thoroughly believed before? Wait, isn't salvation by works? Aren't you supposed to work your way to heaven? Isn't that how, that's how that goes, right? Um, no. Actually, that's not how it goes. Well, if it's not how it goes, then I've got some problems now. You mean to tell me salvation is not by works? Then there are some consequences to that. Paul is well aware of the thinking of the people to whom he's addressing who are Jewish. Paul has now traveled around by the time he writes this book. Uh, he's had a couple of missionary journeys. He's obviously spoken to any number of rabbis throughout the Jewish world. He goes from synagogue to synagogue, and he's heard lots of objections to the things that he has to say. So as he writes this book, having not gone to Rome, he realizes that it's going to be important for him to actually answer the questions that are being asked him, even though the person to ask them is not there. So the book is written in such a way that Paul is addressing the questions of people who think you get to heaven by working your way there. whether that And, and that would apply more to our situation. Uh, by God's grace, may you have the blessed opportunity to present the gospel to a Jewish person. But even if you don't have the opportunity to do that, we know any number of people out there who are our friends and neighbors who think that you go to heaven by doing good works. And of course that's how you go to heaven, right? You have to be a good person. Uh, are you sure? Are, are you sure? Because that's not actually what the Bible teaches. So this passage, Paul is going to introduce a number of topics which he's going to deal with extensively later. Uh, a couple of things that he just mentions here, he has entire chapters in this book that are going to deal with them. Uh, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 11. There, there are things that Paul is going to, at the moment he's just going to hit them, and then he's going to go later and, and expound on them. So this person, this this. Um, fictitious Jewish questioner that is going to ask these questions. Um, this is not a person who is, you know, necessarily overly hostile. Um, the, the questions that are going to be asked are, are not someone who's just trying to make life difficult. I think Paul is writing this book and probably the questioner is him. You know, I mean, it's like, as I tried to move from a covenantal Jew who believed that I got to heaven because I was a circumcised son of Abraham, to realizing that, no, I actually get saved by my faith in Jesus the Messiah. You know, theologically, that's a, you gotta, that's a long leap. 
you, you got a long way to go to get from one of those to the other. The book of Romans is that leap. And he's going to discuss it. And this would be one of the passages where he really begins to get into this. Because, wait, we've got the Old Testament. We've got the Old Covenant. I mean, come on, God spoke to Moses, right? God told Moses, build the tabernacle. God told Moses, let's have the altar. Let's, let's have the showbread. Let's carry out, you know, the whole book of Leviticus. We've got these, these seven major feasts that we keep. We've got the five major sacrifices that we keep. You know, we've got Yom Kippur and, and you know, we get the, what do we do with all that? Wait a minute, we are Jewish, right? I mean, that was okay. I mean, it, 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 I mean God does love the Jews, right? What, do, what is it you're saying anyway? And so these kinds of questions, what, what do we do about the fact that we're Jewish? I mean, what do you want us to do with, with all of this stuff that God has given us? Are we just supposed to throw away the temple? and the high priest, and to all of these sacrifices. I mean, God made a covenant with us. We are his people. And if, if, you know, if God is just going to forget all that and throw it out to a bunch of Gentiles, I'm, is he breaking his word to us? I mean, don't we have a covenant with God? Isn't there an old covenant that, we're, that, that God, has God is obligated to fulfill to us as Jewish people? Um, and if you don't work your way to heaven, well, and the world is the point of good works anyway. Those questions are the kinds of questions that Paul gets asked, and those questions are going to be answered in the book of Romans. So the first question that this, this questioner is going to ask, and, uh, and if we go through this passage two or three times throughout this sermon, you'll, you know, please forgive me, it, it may require that. So the first question that the questioner asks is, well, you know, what advantage is there to being Jewish? Which is a perfectly reasonable thing to ask if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 is like, you know, everybody's a sinner. Um, and the idolaters are sinners and, you know, everybody's a sinner. And then he gets into chapter 2 and he's like, you know, even moral people, even, even the good people, they're, they're sinners too. And at the end of chapter 2, behold, you are called a Jew and you rest in the law and you know God and his will, and you think that you can teach others, and that, you know, uh, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Uh, you know, and by the way, circumcision only counts if you keep the whole law. And in fact, if the uncircumcised keep the righteousness of the law, won't their uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And won't your circumcision be counted as uncircumcision if you don't keep the whole law? Which, oh, by the way, no one keeps the whole law. Well, and if you're Jewish, right, you have the natural question, well, well, well then what's the point? What's the point of the whole Old Testament? I mean, you know, we've got it over here from Genesis to Malachi. Why? We're just going to throw that all away? What advantage does, have, does the Jew have? And the answer to that, of course, is that they have many advantages. And Paul does not in any way deny that. Yeah, yeah they have lots of advantages. Um, and he'll expound on that in chapter 11 even more. He says, but first of all, they have the word of God. They have the oracles of God, which is what the King James says, which is a pretty interesting word for the King James to throw in there because the word oracle is actually a, um, if, you, 
If you want to do an interesting word study, do a word study on the word oracle, which is not a Greek word, it's an English word, and it actually has to do with the occult and reading signs of, you know, birds flying over your head and the shape that they're, it's like reading tea leaves, you know, it's, that's, it's the same, you know, genre over there that we're reading smoke or, or who knows what, various patterns of birds, that's this word oracle. Probably not the best word for the guys who translated the King James to pick, but nonetheless, they threw it in there. It's, but it's, it's the words of God. The Jews have the words of God. And these are, in fact, incredibly powerful. Before the New Testament was ever written, salvation was completely possible through the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament doesn't contain the gospel. Of course it does. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, remember the, the rich man is down there in Gehenna, who is, oh, by the way, Jewish. Don't tell him that, you know, it's a, wait, here's the Jewish guy in Gehenna. And uh, Abraham um, did not stop him from entering into Gehenna. In fact, he's going to have a discussion with Abraham, who's going to look at him and say, well, you know, during your life you had all your good things, and Lazarus had all his terrible things, and, well, now Lazarus is comforted and you're tormented. Um, heaven forbid that you should have actually had some compassion on Lazarus while you had the opportunity. And, of course, what he says, what the rich man says is, well, you know, you've got to send Lazarus back. And, you know, whether he leaves the comfort of Abraham's bosom or not to go back into that terrible, awful world, which, oh, by the way, I'm completely well aware of how terrible and awful that world was for him. But, you know, I'm in Gehenna and as selfish as ever. That's, you know, really the bottom line here. I don't really care about Lazarus. Just send him back to go tell my brothers. <laughs> um, no, what does is, what is, uh, Abraham say? Abraham says, you know what? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them hear them. And, and of course, this guy who is sitting there in Gehenna decides to have a theological argument with Abraham, which just is, you know, it's, it's a sermon on its own. Uh, but he continues to argue with Abraham. And he says, no, no, if you send one back from the dead, then they'll be leaving. And he says, you know what? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to one raised from the dead. I mean, if the word of God will not transform you, then some great miracle is not going to, you know, add to that. John, Jesus tells them in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is in there, but what they speak about is me. Jesus says these, the scriptures bear witness of me. Paul writes to Timothy and says in, in 2 Timothy 3.15, from a child you've known the sacred writings. And of course, he's speaking of the Old Testament, and which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Because all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. That's what the Word of God does. And at the time Paul's writing this, he's speaking about the Old Testament. We, the Jews, were entrusted with these scriptures. This was incredible. The, what advantage does the Jew have? Well, you've got the Old Testament scriptures. They're yours. You can read them. They're in your language. They're written in Hebrew. Open them things up. Look them over. In them are the words of life. As we today, right? Um, we have the message that God has reconciled uh, the world through Christ unto himself and committed to us as this word of reconciliation. They had the old covenant committed to them. We have the new covenant 
committed to us. And they were unfaithful, actually, in spreading the Old Covenant out there to the Gentiles. In fact, they hated the Gentiles and called them dogs and didn't want to get near them and that whole situation. Uh, Lord, save us from not being uh, aware that the message of the gospel is for everybody. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or the language that you speak. God saves everyone from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. And it behooves us to make sure that we get the gospel out to all of them. Now, if you are of the opinion that salvation comes about through works, there are a couple of ways of thinking that are going to be ingrained in you. There are a couple of things you're going to have to do in order to sleep at night. One of the things you're going to have to do is you're going to have to shrink sin down to the size that you can, you know, kind of handle it. I mean, if you're going to work your way to heaven, right, if, if you're thinking that the way to go to heaven is to be a good person, then being a good person has to be attainable. If it's not attainable, then none of us are going to go to heaven, and that's not going to work. So, you know, sin becomes this, this thing that you don't do. I mean, right? That's, that's what sin is. And so, you know, we love to hear, you know, good, hot, fiery sermons about a bunch of sins we don't commit, right? I mean, isn't that great? Yeah, ha, preach it, brother, you know? But when it actually gets down to the sins that, you know, are lurking within our heart and soul, and we start talking about, you know, pride and selfishness and anger and not praying and not being kind, you know, I mean, you're right, no, stop, please stop, you know? Um, those things, it's like, well, look, if you mean to tell me that, any guy who looks on a woman to lust after her is committing adultery, we're in trouble. I mean, we are in trouble. And yeah, yeah, actually we are. We are in trouble. You mean to tell me that if I just sit around and think about how I would like to murder my neighbor or the guy who cut me off in trap, you mean to tell me that's as bad as actually, you mean, you mean to tell me that a heart of murder is a murderer's heart? Yeah, yeah, actually I do mean to tell him. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said. The problem is that the heart of adultery is the heart of an adulterer. The only thing you lack, perhaps, was the opportunity or the nerve. But you know, if in your heart you're perfectly willing to commit adultery, well, you have an adulterous heart. And that standard is devastating. If you're working your way to heaven, you've got to ignore that standard, because there's no way you're going to get to heaven if that's the standard. Which, of course, is the point. I mean, that is Jesus' point. But if you're a Pharisaical Jew, you can't go there. That, that, that's not going to work for you. Uh, because if, you know, no. And if you finally decide, all right, well, uh, well, we'll put that argument aside. Let's, let's get on the offensive a little bit here. So what you're saying, then, is that salvation is by grace, right? So you're saying it's not by works. All right, well, if it's not by works, then the only other option that you're putting forward here is that it's by grace. Really? So God is just graciously saving sinners. Really? So God just, just shows his grace to people by forgiving sinners. Well, if that's true, then we should all just sin the more. We should sin lots because, after all, that, you know, the more a sinner we are, the more gracious God is going to get to be to us. And so that's kind of the offensive side of the same argument. In fact, let's just rejoice in sin because that will give God the greatest opportunity to show his grace. Now, both of these things are arguments that Paul has heard. Both of them are going to be addressed in the passage that we're, that we're going to be looking at here. Uh, we find that these people... Um, 
they, they think you do earn your way to heaven. And they're going to be asking Paul about that. The problem is that if you, if you think you earn your way to heaven, oh, it's just a terrible way to live your life. Because, you know, you end up, all the joy is just sucked right out of any relationship you might have with God. It's, it's gone. God is never going to smile at you. You're never going to do good enough. It, it, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're not quite good enough because inside you always know that you don't quite reach the standard. And so, you know, God is always this big meanie who's going to, you know, looking at you with a critical eye to make sure you're good enough to get in. And, oh my, you know, it's, it's, it's a really tough way to go. We don't want to hear, if we're working our way to heaven, that we're sinners to the core. We want to know that Abraham worked his way to heaven. And, you know, Moses worked his way to heaven. And David worked his way to heaven. And Daniel worked his way to heaven, right? I mean, all these guys went to heaven by good works, right? Uh, Paul is going to address those shortly, um, particularly the next chapter, 4. This is what they think. This is where they're going. In fact, our whole nation is simply saved because we have fulfilled the covenantal obligations. Therefore, God must save us. In fact, if God doesn't save us, then God is going to be violating his covenant with us. Well... You get up and you preach the gospel that salvation is by grace. And I'm over here thinking that I'm not saved by grace. I'm saved by works. Well, all right. So all these good works I've done, all this misery I've gone through, it's all for nothing? Really? No, we're not going there. Um, and, and if God just forgives sinners and that's what makes him look good, then, um, you know, well, let's sin. I mean, let's, let's just go sin. Why not? It's all forgiven anyway, right? I mean, what was the point? What was the point of being a good person? I, you know, um, In fact, the bigger the sinner you are, the greater you're going to make God look. So let's actually get a look here at the passage. Uh, these are, let's, let's, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Um, you know, if everybody's a sinner, then, you know, what, what, what good does this do me? Um, Paul not only answers that they had the word of God, but in, in chapter 9 he says that they are Israelites and they have the adoption as sons, they have the glory, they have the covenants, they have the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, uh, the fathers, you know, the patriarchs are theirs, and uh, Christ came from them. Uh, these are great things that the Jews have. Now, next question, verse 3. What if some did not believe. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And uh, if, you're, if you're back there on your, uh, you know, working here theologically and trying to, you know, wrestle with this passage, you can ask yourself this question. Is this Paul asking this question? Or is this the Jewish questioner asking this question? Is this a rhetorical question? Or is this a, um, you know, anyway... And it gets more interesting the further down the passage we go. What if some did not believe? Now, what if some of the Jews didn't believe? Does that mean, then, that God is unfaithful to his covenant? That's the question that's being asked. Now, if you think that you get to heaven by your good works, and you're arguing against the idea that you get to heaven by believing, then you're immediately going to say, well, well wait a minute. Um, if some people, Paul is answering this question, he's saying, look, if just because some people don't believe, 
That doesn't make God in violation of his covenant. In fact, and he quotes, um, he's going to quote, God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you might be justified in your sayings and you might overcome when you're judged. Now, who might be justified in their sayings and who might overcome when they're judged? You, the Jews? Actually, what you have to do is you have to go back and find out where this quote is coming from. And this quote is actually coming from Psalm 51. And David is speaking about God. It's God who is going to be justified in his sayings. And it is God who is going to prevail in his judgment. And the point of the passage is this. Look, David sins with Bathsheba and then kills Uriah. And when David prays this prayer to God, what he's praying to God is, you know, Lord, you're, you're condemning me for this. And, oh, by the way, well, you should. Uh, in fact, just because, and this is Paul's point here, just because David, I mean, David, I mean, we're talking David here, right? David is saying that God is justified in condemning me. Who amongst his audience is going to disagree with that? It's like, look, guys, wait a minute. we got a problem here. God is perfectly within his rights to condemn even the patriarch, well, not quite a patriarch, but even the great leader, David. In fact, David says that. Um, I'm a liar. I, I deceived everyone about Bathsheba. I murdered Uriah. Uh, you, though, are true. God can be faithful to his covenant and still condemn David. The point, of course, is that God can condemn everyone. And just because God condemns unfaithful Jews, that does not make God unfaithful to his covenant. So what if some didn't believe? I mean, does that make God's covenant ineffectual just because some, some of the Jews didn't believe the covenant? And the answer, of course, is, is no. No, that, no that, doesn't, that doesn't make God unfaithful. So some of them didn't believe. In fact, you know, some of them were idolaters. Some of them were just good people, and some of them were absolutely Jewish folks. God can keep his covenant and still send some of his covenanted people to hell. Just because you're Jewish, and just because you got circumcised, and just because you're a descendant of Abraham, uh, yes, God does have a covenant with you, but guess what? Some of those folks are not going to make it. In fact, Paul's answer to the question is, well, it's impossible. God cannot possibly break his covenant. In fact, though everyone may be a liar, God is never a liar. God is righteous to condemn even his chosen people if they don't keep their end of the covenant. If you are a Jewish, but you are a sinner, you can fall under the condemnation of God. And of course, the point is that how many, how many Jews are sinners? Oh, that's right, all of them. Right. So God is well within his rights to condemn anyone who is a sinner, whether you happen to be in a covenant relationship with him or not. If you don't keep your end of the covenant, that doesn't make God unfaithful. That makes you unfaithful. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God... Oh, oh okay. So... God actually shows, let's be careful, let's be clear here about what it is that Paul is saying. Because you want to hold on, right? You're Jewish and you want, to, you, want to, you, know, you want to argue here. You're like, well, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me that God, by keeping his word and condemning the people who, who break the covenant, 
that you end up with God being true and every man a liar, which of course means God looks great and everybody else looks worse. In fact, the worse we all look, the greater God looks. So our unrighteousness actually commends the righteousness of God. Is that what you're saying? Are you actually trying to say that as we become more and more condemned as sinners, you're over here trying to condemn us all just to make God look good? Really? Are you sure you want to do that? That's, that's the question that's being asked here. I mean, if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what, what are we going to say? I mean, because let's face it. If me being a sinner and you being a sinner and everybody being a sinner makes God look good, how can God condemn us? Who's, is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? And, and Paul is like, you know, I, I'm saying this as a man. I, you know, I mean. But what he's saying is he's putting forward the arguments that are put to him. Look, if you're saying that salvation is just by grace, then the, more, the bigger a sinner we are, the better we make God look. You, you've got God condemning people who make him look good. That can't make sense. And of course, Paul is like, God forbid. I mean, of course, this is wrong thinking. This is, this is not good thinking. Uh, no, those are not reasonable conclusions to draw. If that's true, then how in the world is God going to judge the world, let alone judge the Jews? I mean, obviously, just because God is faithful to his covenant and his people are unfaithful, that doesn't mean that God somehow has to reward sinners who make him look good. In fact, he says, look, if the truth of God is more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged a sinner? He's like, look, if I took your way of thinking, if I, you know, you're trying to accuse me of teaching this. I don't teach this. In fact, if I did teach it, if I, if I agreed with your view, then I would say that I am a sinner and aren't I great? And I, look, the truth, if I said the truth of God more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I sitting up here telling you that I am a sinner? Why would I say that? I mean, if I actually agreed with your crazy mixed-up logic here that sin makes God look good, then as the greatest sinner of all, I'd be saying that I make God look the best. And I, and I don't say that. In fact, we are slanderously reported that some people say that. It's a slanderous report that some say, well, let us do evil that good may come. And frankly, their damnation is just. I mean, they're, they're, no, this is not going to work. And I don't teach such a thing. I don't even say such a thing. That's not my relationship with God, nor do I suggest that that become your relationship with God. And so the Jews who are trying to bring this, these, these are people who are trying to wrestle God into their corner. Well, it, you know, it doesn't work. The parable of the prodigal son. The parable is not actually the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually a parable about the elder brother. Because that's who Jesus is speaking to. He's not speaking to, to a bunch of prodigals. Although, I'm sure there are prodigals who are listening to it. I'm sure there are people who are hearing the exchange. But the actual parable is addressed to those scribes and Pharisees who thought that they could work their way to heaven. And so, what, what, is, the, what is the parable? Well, there's this father who's got these two kids. And one of them says, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. Okay, so he gives it to him, and off he goes. And, of course, he spends it all. We know, right? He spends it in, in riotous living. I mean, he's a prodigal, right? He goes out. He just, he just wastes it all on, on, you know, drunken orgies and just all, you know, just crazy stuff. Spends all his dad's money. Well, then he's out there feeding the pigs, you know, and he's like, oh, 
man, what am I doing here? I mean, my father has servants at home who are eating better than I am. Ah, and they're sitting around with the pigs. And of course, you're Jewish, so you don't want to even get near pigs. And not only am I here feeding the pigs, I'm eating the pig slop. Because no one's going to feed me. So I'll go home and I'll tell my father that, you know. Well, so he does. And of course, we all know the story, right? Dad has just been waiting and runs out to greet him and, and puts the robe on him and puts the ring on his finger and kills a fatted calf and has a big party. Now, here is where the parable is actually addressed to. Where is his older brother when the party comes? Won't go in. Dad goes out and talks to him and says, hey, what's, what's the deal? Well, I've been over here serving you. I've been doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing, and you never killed a fatted calf for me, that me and my friends could have a party. And now when this your son comes back, having wasted all of your money, you throw a party. I ain't having any of it. This is a proud, pharisaical, I'm working so that I please God, and uh, I'm pretty unhappy with those bunch of sinners who have shown up, and you're showing them grace. How dare you show them grace? How dare you show my brother, who is nothing but a wicked, rotten sinner, a fatted calf and a party? That's just wrong. That is just wrong. You can give me a fatted calf and a party, and I've been faithful to you the whole time. Hmm. Okay. Remember the parable in Matthew chapter 20, and I'm sure you do, a similar lesson. So here's these guys, they show up at 6 in the morning and they go to work. And, they, and he says, how much, you know, I'll pay you a day's wages, a, a penny, a, a full day's wages. I'm like, yep, sounds good. All right, 9 o'clock, he goes back down to the place where all the guys are working. And he says to them, you know, what, how, what are you guys doing still standing around? They're like, mm, you know, I can't go home and face the wife, right? I mean, I, you know, I, 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 okay, you guys go to work and I'll pay you what, what you know, what's fair. Goes back at noon and at 3. And you can imagine the poor guy is still standing there at three. I mean, he's just been standing there all day. He's, I'm betting, pretty happy to get anything. Wow, I'd actually paid to stand here till three. You know, the guy came. Well, then it comes time to pay him. All right, so we go to the guy who, it's six o'clock, right? So he's only worked, you know, three hours, three to six. And we hand this guy a penny. <clears throat> now, if you've been there since six in the morning, and you know this guy's only been there since three in the afternoon. You're thinking, well, this is good. Man, I, I should be getting two or three pennies. You know, this is going to work out pretty good. And then he gives a guy who showed up at noon a penny. And then he gives the guy who showed up at nine a penny. And then he comes to you and he gives you a penny. You're like, hey, well, what's the deal? Uh, this, 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 this isn't right. Um, well, you agreed to work for a penny, right? And you agreed to work for a day's wage, right? And this is a day's wage, right? Well, yeah, but we deserve more. Are you sure? Um, you were really kind to him. Yes, I was. I, I can be kind to the people I wish to be kind to. I what? Just because I was kind, does that make me evil in your sight? Just because I was gracious to this guy who stood around until three in the afternoon and I decided to give him a full day's wage, does that make me evil in your sight? It was kind. So? But see, if you're a workspace person, if you're working your way to heaven, you are pretty upset. 
I mean, if you're thinking that your relationship with God is, well, I've done good, I've done good, I've done good, and so when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, and, and when you get to heaven, you find out that all that, that didn't do anything for you. It achieved absolutely nothing. And the guy who was this wicked, rotten sinner, who perhaps engaged in rebellion against the Roman Empire and tried to overthrow it and stole stuff and was, you know, and there he is hanging on the cross, and he says, Lord Jesus, save me. And Jesus says, well, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That guy got saved, and you're a Pharisee, lived your whole life, and you end up in hell. You're going to be pretty upset. You shouldn't be. I mean, I suppose you should be, but you shouldn't be surprised. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. Remember the third parable in Matthew 22. Remember, there's a wedding, and he invites people, come to the wedding. Yeah, come on, you know, oh, well, you know, I just bought a new car. I've got to drive it, you know, and try it out. Or just got a couple oxen, you know. Oh, I just got married. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't, you can't expect me to, I got, you know. And just all these excuses. So it's like, okay, go out into the highways and byways. And just, I don't care. Invite anybody. I, you know, we're going to get this place filled. They do, but in comes a guy. Now, at the wedding, you're handed a garment. Everybody gets a garment. When you come in, you got the wedding garment. You don't have to buy it. We just give it to you. It's here you go. Put this thing on. You know, we want we want everyone in the wedding to all look really good. And this guy, not wearing his. And he goes up to him and says, you know, uh, where's where's your wedding garment? I mean, it was it was free. It was just given to you. Oh, well, you know, I was thinking my street clothes are good enough. Tough luck on the rest of you if you don't think my street clothes are good enough. Really? <clears throat> so you get to set the standard. You just get to tell the good man of the house how it ought to go, huh? Really? So you're just going to get to heaven and bang on the gates and tell God why he should let you in. You're just going to tell God how it ought to be. Well, this guy tried that, and what happened was he was thrown out and uh, thrown into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, let's see how that goes for you, because it doesn't go really well, particularly since the garment was free. It's given by grace. The gospel is the grace of God, and it's, it's offered. But see, if you think it's by works, then you, you already think grace is unfair. So you argue with God. You have a fight with God. The fact of the matter is that not only are we saved by grace, we live by grace. Every single day of our lives, it's not just a matter of the gospel being by grace. The reality is that today we need grace, and tomorrow we need grace, and every day after that we need grace. We live by the grace of God. We're saved. We have the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we are clothed in his righteousness. But the fact of the matter is that we are still sinful to the core. We're still selfish. We still have sin problems. We're, we're working on it. But the fact is that if God stopped operating towards us by grace and started operating towards us by giving us exactly what we deserve, none of us would make it out the back door. We'd all die. We are still sinners to the core of our being. And what that should produce in us is this amazing gratitude to God that he continues to preserve us from what we deserve. Thank you so, Lord, so, so much, Lord, that I am not <laughs> completely reaping what I sow. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are rescuing me from my own sinfulness. We are corrupt to the core. We are selfish. We are proud. That's who we are. And God, you know what? Our house hasn't burned down. Unless, of course, yours has. And I'm very sorry about that. That, that may occur. Even if it does, God is with us through that. You know, illnesses, difficulties, hardships may very well come our way. But you know what? God just gives them to us to make us more conformed to the image of his son. God's not mad at us. God's not angry at us. God's not pouring out his wrath on us. All the anger and wrath that God had, he poured it all out on Jesus. So anything that does come our way that's difficult and hard is just, just the loving hand of God to help us become the people we need to become and done by grace. It's never harder than we can stand. There's, there's, God is faithful and will not suffer us to be tempted above what we are able. But we'll provide escape so that we can endure. It's not an escape from the trial. It's escape from the difficulty. From the, there's hardship, but God provides a place for us to just endure it, to just get through it. Some, you know, you all know, right? My wife has Parkinson's. There's no cure. It's not going anywhere. And it's going to get more and more exciting as the years go by. You know what? We're going to endure that. And hopefully, by God's grace, we will endure that with his grace. But there's no, I, I, I do not foresee a, a cure for that. But that doesn't mean that we don't just push forward and continue to bring honor and glory to God through our lives in the midst of the trial. And that's what God calls us to do. He just pours his grace out on us every single day so that we can serve him. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to give me what I deserve. I want his grace. I seek his grace. And that's Paul in the book of Romans here is trying to bring his dear, beloved Jewish brethren, uh, oh, that they would see this message of grace and how transforming it is. And that's what this book is about. It's to help them and us drag them into the kingdom of grace so that they can see who God truly is. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great and gracious God. May our hearts be drawn to you because of the great things you've done for us. May we be driven not by guilt, not, not by fear and worry. May we be driven by gratitude. May we get up every morning amazed that we are still there. Life is still going on. You still love us. May, may we say with the saints of old, all this and heaven too. Uh, Lord, may we rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us. May we never lose our gratitude. May it drive us and inspire us. May it give us the love we need for you and for each other so that we may stir one another up to love, to good works. Empower us, Lord. Fill us with that spirit. Continue to transform us, we pray in Jesus' name.